O God, whose glory it is always to have mercy. Be gracious to all who have gone astray from your ways, and bring them again with penitent hearts and steadfast faith to embrace and hold fast the unchangeable truth of your word. Jesus Christ, your Son, who with you in the Holy Spirit lives and reigns, one God, forever and ever. Amen. That's the collect appointed for today, the second Sunday in Lent, March the 13th, 2022. You're listening to Faith Seeking Understanding, and I'm your host, John Green. Thanks for being with me today. I appreciate it. Um, we It's been a, a pretty good week, actually. It kind of strange, though, to say the least. I'm taping this on um, Saturday. And we've been, I've worn shorts several days this week when we've gone out, and uh, yet last night uh, it got really windy, rained a little bit, and then we woke up this morning and there's snow and it's, you know, going to be like in the single digits tonight, so it's just crazy. Um, so anyway, we're moving towards spring, getting there at least, um, but today is a stark reminder that we're not there yet. I can remember several different times since we've been here in Asheville, which is now, what, 18 years, um, Several times we've had snow on, um, on what am I trying to say? On Palm Sunday, I can because rem- we we were not able to start the service. Typically on Palm Sunday in the Anglican world, you start the service outside. You proclaim certain things. You come into the um, into the sanctuary, waving palm branches and singing a song, "All Glory, Laud, and Honor to the Redeemer King," um, as they would have on Palm Sunday, and and we were not able to start outside because it was either so cold or there was several inches of snow on two different occasions. So I don't by any stretch of the imagination think that it's possible we are done completely with winter here in the mountains, but, but it's been a a good week, nothing exciting, particularly going on. We're coming up. We are now eight days away from the one year anniversary of, of uh, Will's traumatic brain injury. And so it's been, um, you know, an interesting year, let's say. Um, it also had, it's been the a bizarre last couple of months because I've had so many close friends who spent time in a hospital that had with COVID or whatever. And then my friend Ricky, um, a week ago, 10 days ago, they signed the order to say, we're going to withhold treatment. He was had been in a coma for nearly a week at that point. And then they, they said, well, it, it, we don't seem to be able to make any progress here. And so they decided to let, to let him go, essentially. And that very day, he began to improve. <laughs> and I spoke with him yesterday. So now a week after all of, everything turned around. So it, it's been interesting. We're seeing another miracle. Uh, is what I'm telling you. And so it's been a fascinating week in some ways for me. Um, been, been a wonderful week. There's been a lot of good things happen. Been able to spend time with some people this week, and it's been a, a good one. So we, uh, I'm ready for spring, though. Um, the, today's snow, if it had been a foot deep, I'd feel different about it because I like snow. But because it's only like, you know, an inch, <laughs> it's just, well, that's that's an inconvenience. So at any rate, we're going to start today. Today we're going to look at how we enter the covenant with God, how we enter the kingdom, and how we stay in the kingdom. And we're also going to look at, is it okay to, to you know, question um, God at any point? Because I'm sure we've all done it. If you've ever had what you thought to be a promise from God about something and then been frustrated at um, it's lack of fulfillment, let's say, the fact that it, the, the promise is delayed, then you'll understand something about the situation with Abraham here. The In this Genesis passage today, which is the first 12 verses and then skip forward to verses 17 to 18, what, what we see is um, 
he has just come from rescuing Lot. There was a battle of four kings and five kings, and the four kings won. They were more powerful than the five kings. And so part of what they did was they took Lot hostage. And so Abraham hears this, takes some of his men, some of his trained men. So he had his own sort of private army here. And so he takes those men and he goes and fights the four kings and wins and rescues Lot. And then after that is when we meet Melchizedek, the king of Salem, who is also a priest. And Abraham gives him a tithe of everything that he got coming out of this battle. And so he's just had this sort of extraordinary experience and he, he's, he's looking and saying, you know, this is all well and good, and I, I appreciate that, and, but, but I'm, I'm concerned. So it begins, though, with the Lord speaking to Abraham. He says, after these things, the things being the stuff I just told you about, in chapter 14, the word of the Lord came to Abraham in a vision. Fear not, Abraham, I am your shield, and your reward shall be very great. There's three different things going on here. This fear not, Abraham, is something that God says pretty regularly throughout Scripture, and particularly in the in the Pentateuch, the first five books of the Bible. Because he first, well, not first, first is here, but the he tells Moses not to have fear, and Moses struggles with that. He he says, "I'm not worthy. I'm not able. I'm I, no. I'm the wrong guy." to do this job, and, and so he ends up taking him back. And then Abraham, or Moses, I mean, then has to say to Joshua, fear not. And then we get the book of Joshua, which is the first book outside the Pentateuch, when God says it to Joshua over and over and over again. And, and it's interesting because the people that he has to say it to end up being his leaders. And I, 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 years ago, now I guess it would have been in 2000, I was in Rwanda and got a, a heads up from a bishop in the northwestern part of the country that borders Congo and Uganda. Um, I got up there, and as I got ready to go out for the entire day, literally going to be gone all day long, the bishop told me, you're going to be preaching in the cathedral tomorrow. I said, well, great, thanks for that heads up. And so what I focused on that, it was the psalm, and, and the voice of the Lord was my theme for the day. And and. The two things that I could come down to that that I could you could always know it was the voice of the Lord were two things: follow me and fear not. And the reason we always have to be told fear not is because if we follow Him, even though we're following the God of the universe, He's going to take us places where we're way over our heads. We are not going to be able to accomplish what He's given us to do in our own power. And so the the fear not is a warning in advance that this is not going to be an easy journey for you. You're going to need me to reassure you in this. And so that's what he did with Moses. That's what he did with Joshua in the conquest of the land. This fear not thing is an important thing, and it's something that that the, the Lord always says to us. It's, it's the warnings that Jesus gave to his disciples that said, you're going to face persecution in this world. And the proof of that will be the persecution that I faced. And, and no disciple is above his master. If they persecuted me, if they hated me, they're going to hate you. And he goes through that even in the Beatitudes in the very early things. Blessed are you when you're reviled and persecuted for my name's sake. Um, because they did this to the prophets before you. And so Jesus is going to repeat some of that in the gospel lesson we're going to look at today. But, but the first thing God says is, fear not, Abraham. He's just come off this this incredible victory. Five kings hadn't been able to 
defeat the four kings, but Abraham and his chosen men were able to go out and defeat them, and he accomplished the purpose that he had. And so why in the world would God say, fear not, Abraham? I'm your shield. I'm the one who defends you and protected you. You won that battle because of me, and your reward shall be very great. Well, he refused to take anything from the kings that he had saved, essentially. So what's his reward? Abraham wasn't looking to be enriched. He he was apparently quite a wealthy man. If he had his own private army and all this other stuff, God blessed him mightily during this period of time. But the blessings that he had received were secondary to him. They were not the things that he was most interested in. And God knew that from the beginning because he didn't promise to bless him and make him a wealthy man. He promised to make him a great nation, which is progeny, children. And so Abraham says, in response to God, saying, don't fear, Abraham, I'm your shield, and your reward shall be very great. Abraham said, or Abram at the time, he had not yet become Abraham. So he he said, oh, Lord God, what will you give me? So what is this reward you're talking about? For I continue childless, and the heir of my house is Eliezer of Damascus. So what he's saying is, is that I don't care about all anything else. There's only one thing that really matters to me. And that's the fulfillment of the promise that you made me to that would have a, I would have children. Uh, the rabbinic uh, scholars believe that there's like 20 years elapsed between Genesis 12 and Genesis 15. It seems pretty reasonable, frankly, to, based on what happens later. It, it seems that 20 years is is probably about the right period of time that would have elapsed. But it, and he's concerned. You know, you made this promise to me about 20 years ago, but and that's what I want. So here, what he's telling him is is what he wants. He just wants a child at this point. And Abram then follows up that with, Behold, you've given me no offspring. Now, what will you give me was his initial question. And then he says, You have given me no offspring. And so he's expecting this from the Lord. I mean, he's an old man, let's face it, at this time. And so he's waiting for the Lord to do something. You know, we'll take matters into our own hands, but no, that's not what's going to happen. You, you have given me no offspring. He knows that everything he has comes from the Lord, and a member of my household will be my heir. I don't have my own child. The thing you promised me, the thing that I've longed for, and you knew it in the beginning because you knew what carrot to put in front of me to get me to go and leave Ur of the Chaldees, yeah, that, that thing, you have yet to fulfill that. And behold, the word of the Lord came to him, <clears throat> this man shall not be your heir. Eliezer of Damascus, not going to be your heir. Your very own son will be your heir. What the actual Hebrew there is saying is, is it will come, your heir will come from your innards. So it's going to come, it'll be the fruit of your body. Your heir is, is not going to be somebody outside your household, not going to be a servant No, the heir of your house will come from you. And he brought him outside and said, look towards heaven and number the stars if you're able to number them. And this look toward heaven, that phrase, the way that that the language that it uses there is to say, take a good long look, Abraham. Take a good long look. Don't just glance. No, no, ponder these things. Ponder the, the vastness of space. Ponder the innumerable stars that are in the heavens. And if you've ever been in a place where, where darkness can really happen, we don't get much of that anymore because we have Walmarts close by. We have 
grocery stores close by. We have all those kinds of things. And so the we, we have too much light pollution is what it's called. We have too much light pollution to see the sky very well. But on a clear night, I can remember one time years ago, um, we, we had a service on a Thursday night and the guy who led worship had a private plane and he flew up from Charleston to come and play for us. This was when we were in Pauly's Island. And, and, it, and I took him to the airport so he could get home afterwards. And they, they've turned the lights on long enough for Chuck to get everything ready, take off and all that. But shortly after he took off and I'm standing on the runway, just watching all this, um, at, shortly after he took off, the lights went back off. And when it did, you could look up and you could see the Milky Way. It was an unbelievable thing because it's not common that we have opportunities to see that anymore. And so this says, take a good long look, Abram. Then he says to him, so shall your offspring be. And he believed the Lord, and he, and he, the Lord, counted it to him as righteousness. And that Paul makes much of that idea. And, and in fact, Christianity is completely based in that, that believing the Lord is counted to you as righteousness, which is what you need to pass through judgment, is righteousness. It's not our righteousness, it's Jesus' righteousness. We believe that he is the perfect Lamb of God. The sacrifice that God receives, and we know that he was received because we know that he was resurrected. So his sacrifice at the cross was, was sufficient, not just for him to be resurrected, but for all who believe in him. But believing is more than just intellectual acknowledgement of a truth. No, it, it means that, that that becomes the pole, it becomes the, the, the sort of the true north. We're going to orient everything around true north. If you have a compass and you're lost somewhere, then you know where you're going. You know which direction. Because you know true north, because the magnetic pole, then you know north, south, east, and west. All those things come into focus because we know where north is. And so we can orient the other directions because we know where true north is. And, and so that's what we do is, is that we are intended to intellectually acknowledge this, but it's intended then to become the true north by which we navigate the rest of our lives. That There's nothing else in this world that we can do that with because everything else is changeable. He's a fixed point, and so we navigate based on him the way we live. We don't put our trust in anything else because we know that's here today and gone tomorrow. So Abraham receives this promise from the Lord again. I've already told you this once. I told you how n- numerous your offspring would be. And, and now I'm, I'm telling you to take a good look and ponder that and think about that. And then he believes him. <clears throat> He's already promised him that he was your shield. And so he knows that the victory that he has just gained is because the Lord was with him in what he did. And, and it's based in that that he believes because he's already seen. He has experience built up in the Lord. And then he said to him, I'm the Lord who brought you out from Ur of the Chaldeans to give you this land to possess. But he said, oh, Lord God, how am I to know that I shall possess it? He has less faith in that because he doesn't own any land. And, and there, there's not really any way to purchase the land there. <clears throat> and how can I know that I'm to possess it? At some level, you can kind of hear Zechariah in the temple when, when the archangel tells him, that you're going to have a child. You and Elizabeth are going to have a child. And, and, and he questions how that could possibly be because they're too old. Now, we've already crossed that hurdle here with, <laughs> with uh, Abram and Sarai that God's promised this, and so he believes it. 
and then but then with the land for some reason he's got some qualms about accepting that truth he said to him bring me a because it's because it's populated by other people and so you're gonna have to conquer all these people in order to get in the land and it seems so uh, unrealizable that he questions him and he said he's he the lord said to him bring me a heifer three years old a female goat three years old a ram three years old a turtle dove and a young pigeon now these are all animals that will be that will be acceptable as sin offerings once we get to the law in the book of exodus these things and, and leviticus these things will all be acceptable as sin offerings and so, essentially, what's happening is, is there's a recognition here. And Abram's not aware of this, but, but ultimately the people, when they recount this story, will recognize that there's an atonement that's being made, even now, in advance, for the sins of the people. And so he, he tells him to bring him those things, and he brought him all these, cut them in half, and laid them each half against the other. But he didn't cut the birds in half because they're too small. So he, he leaves these things, and so there's an alley between these pieces, and they call it the covenant between the parts of the pieces. And when birds of prey came down on the carcasses, Abram drove them away. So he's there a while. He's waiting. to. He knows this is a covenant ceremony. This was typical in, in that place at that time. So, it, but, but God is, so God's using these familiar symbols to do something, but Abram doesn't know what any of this means. I mean, he knows that there's going to be a covenant, but why did God choose these specific things? And, and now he's having to wait for God to show up and do something about it. And the proof is, is these birds of prey are coming down. And so you can see this old man out there, you know, waving his arms and chasing vultures away. And as the sun was going down, a deep sleep fell on Abram. And that deep sleep, that word, is ex- that term, is exactly the same term that you get in Genesis when God brings Eve into being. A deep sleep falls on Adam, and God, from Adam, creates Eve. So th- this is, is that same kind of deep sleep. And so the question then becomes, is this all prophetic that this is happening. No, God's doing a new thing. And so something's happening here. And behold, dreadful and great darkness fell upon him. And then the Lord said to Abram, Know for certain that your offspring will be sojourners in a land that's not theirs and will be servants there, and they'll be afflicted for 400 years. Yippee. But I'll bring judgment on the nation that they'll serve, and afterward they shall come out with great possessions. That sounds better. As for you, you shall go to your fathers in peace. You'll be buried in a good old age. And they shall come back here in the fourth generation for the iniquity of the Amorites is not complete. Now, so God's telling him the future. He's telling him what it's going to look like. And so his progeny can then take comfort in this, and they can begin to count the years, just exactly the way Jeremiah told the Israelites how they were going to, long they were going to be captive in Babylon. And so here, there's this, God's making a promise, and he does the same thing with Mary. The promise isn't just, you know, sweetness and light. There's more to God's promise, and he sends different people to say things to Mary, like a sword will pierce your heart. And and so there's this sort of double-edged sword thing that's going on. And so God says, no, for certain, these things will happen. I'm telling you, Abraham, you can trust me on this. 
And so when the sun had gone down and it was dark, this is different from this dreadful and great darkness that falls on on Abram. And you can you, you can just imagine this this same sort of thing is there's there's this fear of the Lord thing. You can just see the the all the strength going out of this man when this happens to him. And then he hears this word, and then but there's a promise that they will come back and they will possess this land. When the sun had gone down and it was dark, behold, a smoking firepot and a flaming torch passed between the pieces. And on that day, the Lord made a covenant with Abraham, saying to your offspring, I give this land from the river of Egypt to the great river, the river Euphrates. Now, so what's God done here? What he's done is, is that ordinarily in a covenant ceremony like this, what you would have seen was you would have seen both of them. Both he and Abram would have passed through this and, and said, we'll remain faithful to the covenant terms that we have, but God doesn't do that. God takes the entire covenant upon himself. It's only based in God's faithfulness, not Abram's, because Abram, as great as he is, isn't able to do this. He's not able to to be that 100% faithful to the covenant. And so God takes it upon himself. And the, the image is, be it done to me as it is has been done to these animals, if I fail to keep my promise. It's a remarkable act of love and mercy that God does this. You know, he could have given him some sort of a sign, but no, God swears on his own life that this will happen. And, and that's what Abraham then receives. In the gospel today, Jesus is... Um, he set his face toward Jerusalem earlier in Luke's gospel. And so he's going through the towns, he went on his way through towns and villages, teaching and journeying towards Jerusalem for his final time. And someone said to him, Lord, will those who are, be, who are saved be few? Now, you could certainly have every reason in the world to wonder that very thing, because earlier Jesus has said that, that it's harder for a rich man to enter the kingdom of heaven than it is for a camel to pass through the eye of a needle. And so, well, okay, it seems like we've already pretty well limited <laughs> who can come in, and, how di- and you've told us how difficult it is to come in. And it is difficult, because it required Jesus to lay down his life and die on a cross. It's a difficult thing to do, but, but, but the covenant nonetheless— is in his blood, and we always plead his blood, not our righteousness. We don't have any, not compared to Jesus. Paul says, you know, hey, it's filthy rags, it's dung, whatever. Whatever I thought I had before, when I see Jesus, when I see his righteousness, that, yeah, no, there's, there's, there's nothing. And so if you're trying to get in on your own, you're not going to be saved. He says to them, strive to enter through the narrow door. For many, I tell you, will seek to enter and will not be able to enter. When once the master of the house is risen and shut the door and you begin to stand outside and knock on the door saying, Lord, open to us, then he'll answer you, I don't know where you come from. Then you'll begin to say, we ate and drank in your presence. You taught in our streets. But he'll say, I tell you, I don't know where you come from. Depart from me, all you workers of evil. And in that place, there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth when you see Abram and Isaac and Jacob and all the prophets of the kingdom of God, but you yourselves cast out. And people will come from east and west and north and south and recline at the table in the kingdom of God. And behold, some are last who will be first and some are first who will be last. And so Jesus is speaking to a particular group of people here. He's speaking to Jews, some of whom will receive him with great joy and hope on Palm Sunday. Many of those same people will, less than a week later, be shouting, crucify him and demanding his death. They'll also be mocking him, spitting on him. 
It's when he tells this parable of coming in through the narrow door. The narrow door is there's one, it, it kind of fits with John fourteen six. I'm the way, the truth, and the life. No man comes to the Father but by me. There's one door, and it's a narrow door. Everything you have to push all your chips into the table and said, I'm betting everything on Jesus. I'm not betting on Jesus, and I'm betting on Jesus. He's the one who is the door of the sheepfold, as he says in John 10. So what he's saying is, is that there's just one way to the Father, and that's faith, it's trust, it's belief in me and in my righteousness. And we can't have Jesus as simply a great teacher who was also a pretty good man. No, he is perfect in his righteousness, perfect in his obedience to the law. And yes, he's a great teacher, but that is not a definition of him. It's something he did. He is a great teacher because he knows the law intimately, more so than anybody who has ever lived. And so when he says people will come from east and west, north and south, and recline at the table in the kingdom of God, what he's saying is, I'm bringing the Gentiles in. He's not talking about the, the, the things that are based within the, the boundaries of the land. No, no, no. He's talking about people from outside the land, from every corner of the globe, he'll bring in, and they will be at the table in the kingdom. But some of y'all won't. And why is that? Lack of belief. Rejection of the Messiah. Now, they certainly, on the day of Pentecost, we see a lot come in to the kingdom because they believe. They believe in Peter's message of repentance for sin and specifically for the sin of, of killing the Messiah. But then they've got to, what do we have to do? We have to repent and be baptized. Well, I'm repenting of rejection of Jesus. And, and so if I repent, we turn around, move in another direction. If I've rejected him as Messiah, the way that I repent is to accept him as Messiah. But you have to do that in one way. You have to believe. And you have to believe that in his perfect righteousness, being imputed to you through faith. In the same way, Abraham was counted righteous And the proof that God didn't think Abraham was righteous and didn't believe Abraham was righteous was he didn't ask him to pass through the pieces. He knew that he was fallible because he knew he was human. So only God did it because his perfect righteousness assures that what he has promised will happen. He will not break his promise. He will not renege on that promise in any way. He is perfectly faithful as he is perfectly righteous. And so Jesus says, some of you aren't going to get in because there's only one way in, and that's me. He is the narrow door because it can't be anything else. It's not possible that it's works-based because I don't, I'm not perfect, and perfection is the only way in. You know, if, you, if you're thinking I'm not good enough, you're right. Boom. If you think, well, I hope I am, well, you're wrong. Your faith is wrong. Your faith isn't in you. It doesn't have anything to do with whether you're good enough. It has to do with whether you're pursuing Christ-likeness. And that's what Paul's going to tell us, is, is that, that you have turned around and you're moving in a different direction because you know true north. And so Jesus is telling them, this is, it, I'm not answering your question whether many will be saved. I'm telling you, this is the reality is, is that all will not be saved. Because somebody's going to look at it and say, I never knew you. Yes, I was among you, as he, as he says here. We ate, drank in your presence. You taught in our streets. Uh-huh. 
I, I don't know where you come from. Which is an interesting thing because that's one of the main things that they have against Jesus. We know where you came from. You don't come from the right place. Jesus says, ultimately, he's going to look and say, I don't know where you come from. And your plea can't be, I I come from the people of Israel. I'm a child of Abraham. And he he disabuses them of that notion on several different occasions, as does John the Baptist. That's not enough. That's not enough. Being born lucky isn't it. You know, it it, it comes down to, he's telling them, you think that you're a superstar because you were born on third base. Because you were born into the covenant. And that's exactly what he has to say to Nicodemus. And he has to say, that's not enough. You have to be born again. And that's the important thing, is that we have to be born again. But that born again gives us this assurance that he talks about with Abraham. You can be certain, Abraham. Jesus is saying, you can be certain. And, And he shows us that we can be certain because of his resurrection. At the very same hour, some Pharisees came and said to him, get away from here. For Herod wants to kill you. So what they want is, is that they want Jesus to flee. They want to, him to recognize this greater power. And it says that Herod ha- has power over you. And he said to him, go tell that fox. Behold, I cast out demons and perform cures today and tomorrow. And the third day I finish my course. We can read that with a modern ear to what is a fox. Well, it's cunning and crafty. Well, that kind of sounds like the serpent in um, Genesis 3. But that's not the metaphor. The metaphor Jesus is using here is a rabbinic metaphor, and it's always at that t- in this time period. It's always a fox in every single rabbinic literature. Every time a fox comes up, it's contrasted with a lion, and it's to show greater power and lesser power. Well, what is one of the things we call Jesus? The lion of the tribe of Judah. And so he's contrasting here what would have been a, a well-known image to them of a fox. And, and at the same time, he says, you go tell that fox that I'm going to do these things. He's proclaiming himself as a greater power than Herod. Nevertheless, I must go on my way today and tomorrow and the day following, for it cannot be that a prophet should perish away from Jerusalem. So in other words, I'm going to Jerusalem. That's where Herod's palace is. I'm coming to him. I'm taking the fight in his direction. And then we'll see the weakness of Herod in his trial, in Jesus' trial, right? Because he, he wants to set him free, but, but he feels blackmailed, emotionally at least, and also in other ways, by the Jewish leaders. And so he bows the knee to them and, and gives power to them to crucify Jesus. So we see in the future that this reference to a fox doesn't refer necessarily to someone who's cunning and crafty, maybe somebody who thinks they are, but the other side of it is that, that ultimately Herod's weakness is exposed in that trial. O Jerusalem, Jerusalem, the city that kills the prophets and stones those who are sent to it, how often I would have gathered your children together as a hen gathers her brood under her wings and you were not willing. Behold, your house is forsaken and I tell you, you will not see me until you say, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. And, and the irony of that is, is that's exactly what they do say when he comes into town on Palm Sunday. But you see God's love expressed in Jesus' words here for his people, the people who, who are called by his name. 
And he, he says, I got to go to the city of Jerusalem because that's the place that's appointed in the same way that, that Moses had to keep telling the people, you're going to go to the place that's appointed by the Lord is where you're going to establish my, my sanctuary ultimately. And so Jerusalem is that place. It's the place where the sacrificial system was appointed to be. And Jesus provides the ultimate sacrifice here as the lamb, the Passover lamb. The ultimate Passover lamb is Jesus. And so he's got to go to Jerusalem because that's where the sacrifice for atonement is made. He has to go to Jerusalem. It has to take place there. And he's confident that he'll get to Jerusalem and everything will be exactly the way the Father said. Jesus had complete faith in the Father. That's something to know, because he is man and God. He has a long (laughs) experience of the love of the Father and the faithfulness of the Father. And so we see that Jesus is, is moving in the belief, certain belief. He knows for certain that Herod's not going to do anything to him outside Jerusalem. And it and it's grieves him to say that some of you are going to be rejected. He doesn't say that with, with relish at all. It grieves him greatly. Oh, Jerusalem, Jerusalem, how I would love to have gathered you. Children together as a hen gathers her brood under her wings, and you were not willing. I've been faithful. I am still faithful. I'm doing this for you. And I'm doing it in your sight so you'll know my love for you. Not my rejection of you, but my love. I'm doing this all for love. In the gospel, Paul tells us, what do we do with that? And he says, very simple, brothers, join in imitating me and keep your eyes on those who walk according to the example you have in us. And he's saying, you know, be like us. But is he saying that because he's so great? No, he's contrasting this, the faithfulness of the people who imitate him and walk according to the example. He says, for many of whom I have often told you and now tell you even with tears, walk as enemies of the cross of Christ. It pains him to say this about these people. They walk as enemies of the cross of Christ. And, and who he's probably talking about here are those who, who talk about works, who talk about, no, you got to do this, you got to do this, you got to do this. It's, no, no, you, you got to do these things in addition to belief. You've got to do these things. And he says, no, 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 no. You're an enemy of the cross of Christ if you say that because you have diminished the power of the cross. You have said it is insufficient for salvation. And once you've said that, you're an enemy of the cross of Christ. Their end, he says, is their destruction. Their God is their belly, and they glory in their shame with minds set on earthly things. But our citizenship is in heaven. Remember that, right? I mean, that's what he's saying. Our citizenship is in heaven. It's the same thing that the, uh, the writer of Hebrews talks about, is, is that, that, no, we, we have a better country. We recognize that we're strangers and aliens in this land, that our citizenship is not here. It's actually elsewhere. And so we need to be those people who show the world what it means to be a citizen of God's kingdom. Don't just pray that your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Establish it first in your life and then work for the establishment of it in the world by proclaiming the gospel of Jesus Christ. Our citizenship is in heaven now, today. 
Not at some later date, not after you die. No, today. You participate partially in the kingdom today. And if we want the kingdom to come because we know the blessedness of God's kingdom, then we work for the establishment of it here in love, in the same way Jesus did. And he says, from heaven, we await a Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, who will transform our lowly body to be like his glorious body by the power that enables him even to subject all things to himself. We, we recognize that this body and the gratification of this body is a silly, silly proposition because ultimately it's just gone. It's a losing proposition to take glory in the body and to satisfy the desires and the urges of the body because, wow, it's messed up. <laughs> and so he says it's, that body's going to be transformed into like his glorious body. So don't do everything in the world to gratify the flesh because that's going to go away. He says, by the power that enables him to subject even all things to himself. Therefore, my brothers, whom I love and long for, my joy and crown, stand firm thus in the Lord. My beloved, that's the job. How do you strive to enter in by the narrow door? Stand firm in the Lord. Let your faith be certain. And if you're wavering in faith, if you're questioning, ask him. Ask him to show himself. He's more than happy to do it. He's already done it on the cross and the resurrection. Ask him. To, to give you the certainty that all of these things are true and then stand firm in that truth.